Well, as many of you know, Melanie and I have an affinity for Louisville, Kentucky. It's where I've gone to school and where I'm continuing my studies down there. I don't love it as much as Sussex County. I'm just saying that. It's a nice place to visit. You know, it's just not, I don't want to live there, but it's a nice place to spend time there. One of the slogans that you'll see when you're in Louisville, Kentucky is this one, keep Louisville weird. <laughs> Which at first I'm like, okay. And then I thought about it and actually did a little research on it, of course. It's a thing. It's an actual thing. It's one of their business uh, department slogans, meaning that Louisville has unique charm. They have unique businesses. They have unique art and culture. It's a sentiment to say, let's not let that get watered down. Let's keep our weirdness. Let's keep our uniqueness. And so I'll recommend a saying for us, keep Highlands weird. Let's keep Highlands weird. Weird. I'm not necessarily calling you all weird, but I know all of you. So the, the boot does fit, right? Highlands, though, should be kept weird. Why? Because Highlands is an outpost of the kingdom of God here in Sussex County. The kingdom of God is completely unlike anything else around it. And so it should be weird. It should be different. It should stick out. The world should think it's weird. The church is weird to the world around it. Have you noticed that other people, maybe family members, good friends, coworkers, whatever, think you're weird because you're a Christian? Anybody else? Just me? They think you're weird. Good. You're supposed to be weird. So why is the kingdom of God weird? And we're going to learn all about that today. Uh, in Matthew, actually, we're going to start a little mini-series within a series, three weeks on the kingdom of God, and as Jesus teaches us all about his kingdom, once again, Matthew 18. Thank you, Paul, for reading that. If you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much. This is what we do. This is called expositional preaching. We expose the meaning of the text. So hopefully, my sermon, the main point of my sermon, is the main point of this passage, right? I, I hope to never come to you with five ways of how to have a better Monday. And everybody laughs because that's my joke, right? You might, you might find ways to have a better Monday in Scripture, but I'm not going to take all Scriptures out of context and try to build a straw man of how that would fit in with whatever felt needs we have. We come to the Word of God because it is the authority, because it is given by God, it is the very creative breath of God, and then we do the hard work of understanding it and then submitting ourselves to it. And so last week we looked at Jesus as he predicted his death and resurrection for the second time and how that is related to a tax that he really didn't have to pay. It all came down to the mission of the gospel. And Jesus taught us last week that a disciple keeps the mission primary at all times. Above all of our plans, above all of our rights, about all of how we think things should go, we, in doing that, experience the blessings of the king as we follow him, but we also experience his provision this week, we start the fourth major teaching section of Jesus in Matthew. Big corner that's being turned here. One commentator wrote that it is the single greatest discourse our Lord ever gave about life among the redeemed people in his church. Jesus is going to be talking about the kingdom of God, meaning becoming a Christian, meaning looking forward to the ultimate consummation of his eternal kingdom. So right now, we're in the kingdom of God, but we're not really yet in the kingdom of God, if you know what I mean. So it's the already not yet tension of that. This week, we're going to look at part one, kind of the community of the kingdom and what's that 
like, specifically comparing the kingdom of God to the kingdom of the world around it. Look at verse 1 of 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Really, guys? I mean, that's, that's your question. Hey, Jesus, who is the top disciple? Come on, just tell us. Others note that on the heels of Jesus predicting his death again, the disciples were like, well, if he's really serious about this and he's going to get himself killed, somebody's got to take over and let's figure out who that is. So they're jockeying for position. Mark's account is even less flattering for our friends, the disciples. In Mark 9, looking at verse 33, and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they didn't want to tell him what they were discussing on the way, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Moms of toddlers right now can rejoice because we're just like, that's what you were fighting about? Who's better? Who's the greatest one? No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Yikes, how old are we right now, disciples? Have you guys not learned anything? They're jockeying for position. It's a power play just like the world around them. That's what people in the world do. The people in the world seek power. They seek status. They seek influence. These are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Have you not been paying attention to what he's been saying? Is this how he wants his kingdom characterized? By people jockeying for importance? Instead of Jesus directly answering their question, as you would surmise, right, once again, he never misses an opportunity to correct them. Look at verse 2. He says, In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I'm not sure why ESV goes with a comma and keeps rolling there. That's not the way it is in the Greek. It is, it's a full stop, and then they start a new one. CSB is that way too, if you're, if you're following along in CSB. Jesus pulls a child, right? Probably a very young child, probably no more than five years of age or something. Notice he doesn't say anything, right? So they drop this profoundly stupid question, right? Who's the greatest one here? Jesus doesn't say anything. He then grabs a child, gently, grabs a child, right, pulls him into the middle of the circle, right? You, you could imagine the disciples are starting to roll their eyes at this point, like, that was a bad idea. We should never have asked him that. He brings the child into the middle, not saying anything yet. And Jesus is saying, you guys want to know who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This little kid. This little kid's the greatest. And, and they're like, once again, Jesus, you're saying something that is completely insane. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. How were kids regarded in the first century Greco-Roman culture? Terribly. They were the lowest on the social uh, totem pole, so to speak. They were basically subhuman. They were pretty much like property, pretty much useless until they grew up. Sorry, kids. I don't mean that personally. It's just history, right? The disciples said, maybe, maybe you misheard us, Jesus. We didn't say, who is the least important in the kingdom of heaven? We said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Obviously, you misheard us because you're bringing us a child who nobody regards as anything important because they're just a child. I mean, what can a kid do for themselves? Pretty much nothing. 
They can't dress themselves. They can't cook themselves food. They can't drive themselves anywhere. They're dependent on their parents for everything. We go through a brief period when we're teenagers, when we forget all that. But we're remembering that we are dependent on our parents for everything. Children were subordinate. They were marginalized. And nobody really had any patience for them in that society. And the fact that Jesus brings a child into the midst of them to answer their question of who is the greatest with little kids is ridiculous by cultural standards. And he explains further, he says, truly I'm saying to you, our our series subtitle, right? One of these things he says again, listen to this, truly I'm saying to you, you want to know who's the greatest? This child. You want to be great? Make yourself humble like children. Make yourself dependent like children. Make yourself vulnerable and weak like children. Pretty much the polar opposite of what the disciples were doing in their jockeying for position, wasn't it? And I'm sure they knew that right away. People don't have statuses in the kingdom. I'm no more important than any other member of the kingdom just because I have the title of pastor. People who are looking for status and prestige, Jesus says, you won't even get in the door. Why? He says, because you have to turn and become like a child in order to enter the kingdom. How so? Well, that's the first step, right? You have to realize that you are a sinner separated from God and there's no way that you could possibly save yourself and you are completely dependent on God's mercy in Jesus Christ. So you turn from that. He says, turn, that's not an accident. He says, turn and become like a child. It's a metaphor for conversion. It means become a Christian. That's the first step. And if you walk around thinking that you're holier than thou, or the most important thing, you've missed the big idea. You have to turn and become like a child. You have to repent and understand that you're completely dependent on God in the first place. What a mic drop answer to a profoundly stupid question. If your Bible has red letters, you might notice that the disciples do not get another word in for like the next 25 verses or something. And they're probably afraid to speak at this point because they know They dared not utter another word. Jesus blows them away. He says, you guys way off here searching for status and power and greatness, and my kingdom is not like that at all. Here's the point. The kingdom of God is a place where the least are the greatest. The kingdom of God is a place where the least are the greatest. Many commentators feel that these four verses or five verses are the foundation for this whole last discourse. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not like any other kingdom, especially, particularly, the kingdom all around us, the kingdom of the world. It's not about power. It's not about status. It's about humility and dependence. One study Bible put it this way, the kingdom of heaven is a place where everyone recognizes their dependence on God, just as children know they are dependent on loving adults to care for them. Why is it that way? Well, for starters, look at Jesus. God in the flesh, as Paul reminded us, right? Left the glories of heaven to come to this sin-soaked earth. Was he seeking power and greatness? No. He was seeking the opposite of it. He was humbling himself. The greatest who became the least and eventually executed on a Roman cross like a common criminal. He was not trying to be the greatest, but rather he was trying to be the least, and in so doing, gave us the greatest good. The kingdom is all about paradoxes, right? It's all about these opposites that make sense. 
Jesus was the greatest who became the least. It's all over the Gospels. In fact, I counted seven times where Jesus says essentially this. I put it in your bulletins. If you jump to Matthew 23, you can catch one of them. It says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is in our DNA to try and exalt ourselves, is it not? It's in our DNA to try to be noticed. It's in our DNA to try to be right. It's our DNA to try to be the, the greatest. And Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? Be the most humble. Be the most dependent. And in verse 5, he says exactly what that means. You want me? You want, it? You want, you want access to me? Humble yourself like this child. Elsewhere, Scripture reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a pretty serious thing. We blow by that verse in James, but think about it. Do you want God to oppose you? He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he says. What does this look like practically? The, the sad reality is that we can get self-dependent all too quickly, can't we? We quickly slide into a life that looks like we are the all-sovereign kings and rulers of it, and God is just our assistant in making our lives awesome. The spiritual disciplines are a window into how we view ourselves and our dependence. If our lives lack prayer, if they lack biblical intake and meditation, if our commitment to the church of Christ is something we fit in when we're not too tired or when we're not too busy, we are demonstrating that we're not dependent on God, but ourselves. We're demonstrating a lack of humility by our own claim to independence. That's what that means. That's what that actually says. When we're not pursuing God, when we're not praying, we're not prioritizing the church, we're not prioritizing our time in the word, we're not prioritizing all those other things in growth and grace and maturity, what are we saying? I don't need you, I got this. I got this covered, God, the complete opposite of what he's saying. You need to be like a child. You need to be totally dependent on me and you need to spend a lot of time with me. Jesus has just told the disciples that if you want me, be dependent on me as a child is dependent on their parents for everything. A second point of application here, I'd say, is what is our attitude towards the least of these in our society, right? You know the disciples had to be like rolling their eyes when Jesus brought this little kid. He's just like, oh, kid, what, what, what is this? What is he doing now? What does this mean? Like, I just saw that kid eating garbage like five minutes ago. Now he's going to preach about something profound, who are the least of these in our society? Do we gravitate towards the powerful, the influencers, the celebrities? One of the many things that Christians should be characterized is by our love of people that our society marginalizes, like that child. Who are they today? Is it the orphans? Maybe God is calling you to be an adoptive or foster home. Is it the refugees from other countries fleeing war and famine that we're going to see? We could be in... in in for a tidal wave of Ukrainian refugees. Maybe God is calling you to house them. What about the poor right here in Sussex County? How can you pray for them? How can you partner with people like my brother's place? How can you get involved in helping those right in your neighborhoods who are in crisis? Think, who does our society marginalize? And how can I practically walk this out, what Jesus is saying, to humble myself instead of seeking the greatness of my own independence, to seek humility, dependence, and to seek the least? 
kingdom of God is not a place of sex, sex, whoop, self-exaltation. That's going to make the blooper real. Just for the record, it is a place of sex between married adults. I'm going to hear that for the rest of my life. I was trying to say self-exaltation, which you could imagine is pretty hard to say, and that's why the other thing came out, right? The kingdom of God is a place not of self-exaltation, which, by the way, convicts, I would say, every megachurch in America with a celebrity pastor that just wants to say, look at us, look at how big we are. The kingdom of God is not a place of self-exaltation, but it is a place where the least are the greatest. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be far better or better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. This is a little tricky because most people look at this verse or they think or maybe what they've been taught this verse is saying exclusively about hurting children right and that's your punishment for hurting or uh, abusing children it's actually not exclusively just regarding children although I do believe there's a special place in hell reserved for people who want to abuse and hurt children this verse is talking about all disciples. Jesus is broadening it, saying, hey guys, you want to be a disciple of mine? You want to be greatest in the kingdom? You need to humble yourself like a little child. He's using that as an example. So now he's broadening this, and he's saying, if anyone else causes anyone else of my little children, right, all disciples, to sin, that is a very, very grave and serious matter. When Jesus talks about little ones, he's not talking exclusively about children. He's talking about all believers. We are the little ones in this. We are the ones who are supposed to be that way. He just told us we're dependent. And so what one thinks about sin is extremely important in the kingdom. He then cautions them. But if instead you cause one of my disciples to sin, Again, probably better here, the word is scandalon or scandalizo, which means to fall away so much so that you are wrecked. You are out of the faith. You are out of the race. It just doesn't mean to sin once. He says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown overboard into the depths of the ocean. Again, this doesn't mean so much just causing someone else to sin. It, it means a stumbling block. It means so much that you are blocking someone's spiritual progress to the extent that they fall away, that they give up the race. Christianity is a path. It's a journey. It's a walk. If you get off the path and you don't come back, you're losing your way entirely. One commentator wrote, causing one to stumble meant causing the person to fall away from the way of Christ and be damned. Jesus is essentially saying, guys, this kind of talk about who's the greatest is exactly the kind of sin that will cause a new disciple, a little one, to fall away. Why? Because they're going to get the wrong idea of the kingdom, and they're going to say, why bother? I don't want to jockey for importance like the rest of these clowns. I'm here because I need a savior. 
So what is a millstone? Well, glad you asked. We were in Israel, and we found some millstones. And so this first picture, you know, I can't really see it too well, but that is a, it's a stone, a gigantic stone that is on top of another stone, and there's a little donkey that is hooked up to this pole thing coming out of there, and the donkey's dreary job in life is to walk around in a circle, thus propelling the millstone that's making contact with the other stone, and then it crushes things like olives, and that's how you get olive oil and things like that. So that donkey, actually in the Greek, it's called a donkey stone. And so now you, you see why it's called a donkey stone, because that, that poor donkey, that's his job, just to walk. I wonder if he gets dizzy. He just does that all day, every day. Some of you are like, hey, my job's like that too. That's what I feel like at work too. <laughs> I just go, I just spin around in circles all day, and I'm not sure if I actually accomplished anything. Uh, the next picture too is a little bit, a little brighter, <clears throat> that is unbelievably heavy. If that is tied around your neck and you are thrown into the ocean, you are not coming back. You are going to be embedded in the muck and the mire of that and you are going to drown. Right? It was very horrifying for a Jewish person to be thought of being drowned in that way. Drowning executions did happen here and there in the first century. Uh, in Greco-Roman culture, right? The point is you don't want this tied around your neck and thrown overboard. You're going straight to the bottom. You, are, you will be drowned. You are not getting back up. And Jesus says, guess what? If you cause one of my little ones, any of my little ones to fall away so that they're out of the race, that would be better for you. That would be better for you compared to what awaits you in judgment. It, it, it's an unbelievable picture when you think about it. A little different how than, than most people think of this. It's, it's not actually talking about the punishment for harm, doing harm to little kids, but rather how our short-sighted sighted sin can wreck the faith of another disciple. And Jesus is continuing to teach them the way of the kingdom. He says, you need to pay attention to how you're living. You need to watch it. If you cause another brother or sister to fall away, it is a very serious thing. We have to be very careful of how we think about sin in the kingdom, how our sin affects others, but also how our own sin affects ourselves, because that's where he goes next. Look at verse 7. He says, woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is far better for you to enter life with only one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus in verse 7 laments the presence of sin in the world. He says it's going to happen. It's unfortunate. Woe. He just pronounces woe on that. There's sin in the world. Stumbling blocks are going to happen. People are going to fall away from the faith. People are going to go into sin. There are going to be stumbling blocks that we need to overcome. The path of a disciple is not smooth and wide and flat. The path of a disciple is bumpy with lots of hills and lots of valleys. It is very narrow. But remember, church, there are divine purposes for these stumbling blocks for these hills and for these valleys. We learn to be more dependent. We learn to grow in faith. We learn to be more mature and countless other blessings as we walk up and down the path of a disciple and as we and deal with stumbling blocks and we overcome them by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we go stronger. God shows himself as he is, faithful 
We're reminded of that in this. The Christian worldview, by the way, is the only one that consistently can explain that. An atheistic, agnostic, or progressive Christian worldview cannot make any sense of the roadblocks. They can't make any sense with the problem of evil. It's not consistent. We say, yes, there is evil. It's caused by sin. God is sovereign over it. He has the answer for it. And actually, God is so sovereign that he turns evil for our good. And he grows us through those things. Otherwise, it's just suffering for the sake of suffering. If there's no God, what does it matter? It doesn't in that worldview. The Christian worldview is the only consistent explanation for this. Jesus cautions again, that had better not be us from whom that temptation comes. Woe unto you if you are the source of the stumbling block to others in the community, but also woe unto you if you don't get a handle on sin in your own life. Jesus goes into a rather graphic comparison. This is somewhat familiar territory if you've been tracking along with us when we were back in Matthew chapter 5, like two years ago or something, right? Matthew chapter 5, he talked about lust. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but what I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. When Jesus repeats things, it's important. He says it again here. Two things. This is not talking about self-mutilation. Mutilization, right? Mutilation. I'm having trouble with my words today. Not talking about actually cutting off hands and feet. Not actually talking about gouging out eyeballs, Right? It's talking about taking radical action against sin. It's also not saying that if you were to do those things, to cut off your hand, that you would not sin, or to gouge out your eye, that you would not sin, because obviously the passage we just read in Matthew 5, you can certainly lust without eyes. It's in your head, right? So it's not the cure for sin. But it's an exhortation, church, to radically pursue holiness. If we see sin, Jesus says you better take radical measures to kill it. Puritan John Owen wrote in his epic mortification of sin, simply be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a cancer. You've got to get rid of it. You can't play with it. Jesus is calling us to take radical action against sin. Do whatever it takes. And then he once again uses this, it'd be better for you argument, like the millstone, right? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom with one hand or one eye than to have both of those things and be thrown into hell. Hell is a real and terrible place. Jesus is speaking of sin within ourselves that wrecks our faith, that causes us to stop trusting and persevering in God. We need to remember, church, we're saved, but we're not home yet. We're here. We're saved positionally, but we're still called to persevere. And this is not a question of can we lose our salvation. This is a question of do we understand it and do we truly have it? It's a question of Christians hear these warnings and Christians respond. And Christians say, well, I don't want that to be me. So I better make some changes, right? And if you hear these warnings and you don't make any changes, I would check your faith. 
because Christians persevere, because Christians stay the course, because Christians hear warnings like this and say, that's not going to be me. By the power of the Holy Spirit inside me, that is not going to be me. Hell is a real and terrible place. Christians, we heed the warnings about sin and we take radical action for our holiness. That's the end of the line for faith that becomes wrecked or no faith at all. It's hell. Hell is a place of eternal torment, often spoken of with fire, as Jesus does here, where those who reject God are punished forever. Another cultural apologetic misunderstanding is that God sends innocent people to hell. There's a lot of things wrong with that. It's, it's not true at all. Because first of all, God sends nobody to hell because we're all going to hell. That's our default destination. When we come into this world, because of original sin, we are all broken, we're all separated from God, and every single human being is already on their way to hell. It is a miracle that God saves anyone. And he does it through Jesus Christ. That's the miracle. And then still, with all of this, with all the churches, with all of the Bibles, with all of the proclamation, with all of creation screaming that there is a God, there will still be people that will reject him. And thus in so doing, they send themselves to hell. Every person who doesn't believe in God has rejected him. And God's saying that place that they'll end up in is terrible. You don't want to end up there. Church, we might also think that we are saved and maybe we're not actually saved in that way. We might actually intellectually agree that Jesus existed and died on the cross, but there's no dependence on him. There's no vigilance in, in killing sin. Maybe we're indifferent to it. Again, I would check your faith. There's no change. There's no new life. There's no perseverance. There's no vigilance against sin. So I would say, are you really regenerated? Are you really a Christian? Here's the point. The kingdom of God is a place where we are serious about sin. The kingdom of God is a place where we're serious about sin. Jesus warns them again with shocking consequences. Be on guard against sin. Don't let your sin or, or your sin cause you or someone else to veer away from the faith and end up in hell. Kingdom people, kingdom residents are on guard against sin. They take it very seriously. Many times this can happen when we think we're actually Christians. Maybe we proclaim we're a Christian again, but we're not like living a Christian life. I can think of two relationships in my youth that I had where I claimed to be a Christian. And I did them wrong. I did them wrong. It is a miracle that they did not fall away from the faith after how I treated them. Right? Praise God, both are walking with the Lord and doing well. Right? But that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You're going to call yourself a Christian? You better act like one because you better, you better know how your life is impacting other people. You better understand that. But we still, we, we still just can't say, oh, well, you know, well, that's my life and their life. That's not my problem. Jesus is saying, no, it is your problem. How does your sin affect the walk of your brothers and sisters? Let's look at it in context here. Imagine someone has been hearing Jesus preach. They've come to faith. They've started to follow Jesus around. Now imagine they hear his disciples in this silliness, the ones closest to Jesus, jockeying for position and power and talking about who's the greatest. They'll probably walk away. Who's responsible? Jesus says, break out the millstone. It's you. You're responsible. Your sin. Now, again, we've got to... 
have this, because I see some of you getting nervous. We've got to have this against the whole background of the sovereignty of God, right? And the sovereignty of God in salvation, right? God will lose none of his elect. God will lose none of whom the Father has given him to him, okay? They are secure. So if you are a Christian, you will persevere, right? We've got to remember that. We've got to cling to that, okay? It's not a question of can I lose my salvation or did someone wreck my faith? It's a question of do I really have it? But more for us as the church, right? How are we living? And how does our faith affect the faith of other people? That's what he's saying to the disciples here. You've got to be careful. Jesus warns them of how their own sin can shipwreck their own faith and the call to take radical action to kill it. He says, because eternity is at stake. This isn't a question, again, of losing our salvation. It's a matter of spiritual life and death. Church, if we're Christians, we need to fight like Christians. We need to fight our own sin like that. It's the tension, again, of the already not yet. We're, we're positionally saved. The moment we trust in Jesus Christ and place our full faith in him, we go from guilty to innocent. That's how that works. We jump columns, right? We are an enemy of God. Now we are a child of God. Now we're adopted and justified and forgiven and reconciled and all that stuff, but we're not home yet. We've got to take radical action then on this journey to kill sin. Ask yourself, where do I need to take radical action to kill sin? Well, I sometimes look at porn on my smartphone. It's time to get rid of the smartphone. I can't do that. Like, nobody, I, it's radical. Jesus is calling us to that, isn't he? I spend hours on social media wasting time, or, or even worse, I, I compare myself to others. Maybe I lust after others. Maybe I'm envious of what other people have. Get off social media. I can't do that. I'll lose, I'll lose connection with my whole family. I won't know what's going on. I'll miss all the funny memes. No, sorry. Radical action. Jesus is talking about cut it off. Cut it out. Spend way too much time at my work or starting my business. It consumes me so that the spiritual disciplines suffer. Family suffers. Church suffers. Get a new job. That's crazy talk. I can't get a new job. I already have. I can't do that. Jesus is talking about cutting off arms and feet and hands and plucking out eyes. <clears throat> Your feet keep taking you to that place where you get drunk or where you gossip with the other parents or, or where the snack cabinet leads you where you commit gluttony. Get rid of those things. Cut them out. Too radical? It's not what Jesus says. He says, you've got to be radical about this. And Jesus says that his kingdom is a place where we are serious about sin, how my sin affects others, and how my sin affects my own self. And this isn't easy. And if you need help, that's why we're here. Please talk to us. Please reach out. The kingdom of God is not just a place where we're serious about sin. It's also a place where we help one another. Look at the last chunk. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
Some of you are observant and realize that verse 11 has gone missing. Much like last week, a few weeks ago, where we had a verse that was there, this is undoubtedly the work of a scribe that got, well, I'll just help Matthew out a little bit here, because Mark's account had this one verse, right? And then we better put that back in. A lot of you hopefully have it footnoted in there, right? And Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. Not that Jesus didn't say that. He probably did. But Matthew It's Matthew's story. Matthew didn't say that. Matthew didn't include that part. We have thousands of manuscripts that are without that. And so here's the point. We can trust our Bibles because we have scholars and we have thousands of copies of manuscripts that pour over these things. And when when five of them have this little verse in and 20,000 don't, we're like one of these things. It's the old Sesame Street song, right? One of these things doesn't look like the other, right? It's like, well, which which one's authentic? And we note it because we know. And how does this affect the main doctrine of the Bible? It doesn't, right? The Bible has a lot of mistakes. Okay, like what? (laughs) And how does that affect the message of the gospel? It doesn't at all. We've got to remember that. Anyway, that was free. (laughs) Back to the main text. Jesus ties this all together. How could the disciples despise a little one? And again, we've said a little one is all of us, a fellow disciple. By what we just talked about. By looking down on them because they're less than. By not caring about how my life affects their life. How were the disciples despising the little ones, the other disciples? By acting just like the world's kingdom by jockeying for power and position and status. Jesus reminds them, he's like, guys, don't forget, there's a spiritual dimension here, okay? We have, we have angels. We have guardian angels. Not necessarily that we all have one guardian angel. I heard one commentator say, it's probably more like zone defense as opposed to man-to-man. <laughs> we could have one guardian angel. I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever see, but there. Uh, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that they're ministering spirits that are sent out to serve believers. And so look at this, the spiritual realm that's happening, right? We got to make sure that we're on the same team as the angels because they're helping believers to live lives that glorify God. They're helping believers to mature and grow in the faith. And if we're not, we're working against the spiritual forces. We're working against angels, We need to be on the same team. We need to minister to each other. We need to encourage one another. And if one wanders off, guess what? You go and get them. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep, which is probably a round number, and one wanders off. What does the shepherd do? He says, ah, well, I never liked that sheep anyway, and I got 99 left. No big deal. I probably won't even feel that in the bottom line. No, he doesn't do that. He immediately makes sure the 99 are safe on the hillside and he goes after that one wandering sheep. He doesn't go after them all annoyed that he has to go after this one little sheep. He goes after them. Unlike my dog who decided to wander off into the woods and then think it was a game when I was trying to get her back in. (laughs) Why do dogs do that? I don't understand. Jesus isn't telling an isolated story here. He says in Matthew 18, 14, the last verse of our passage, he says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. Church, we need to remind ourselves of the heart of our Father. 
He doesn't want any of us to perish. He wants all of us safely home. Church, you matter to the Heavenly Father. Remember that. He sees you. He knows everything you're going through. And if you're going to wander off, he knows you're going to wander off, and he wants you back. He wants you back. He and his angels are sustaining you. He rejoices over you when you return to him. He wants no one to perish, not one sheep to be lost. He will leave the 99 to go and find you. Here's the point. The kingdom of God is a place where we shepherd one another. Kingdom of God is a place where we shepherd one another. Elders are specifically given this charge in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock that is among you, but this is in no way saying it is just the elders and pastors. There are many other one another commands in Scripture. Before we planted Highlands in our core group many, many years ago, we went through all the one another's. They're still on the blog. I had a good time going through them from like 2014, 2015, right? We're called to love one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, bear each other's burdens, encourage one another in the faith, build one another up, outdo one another in showing honor, be in harmony with each other, many, many more. Could wrap all those up and say, one another, each other, like Jesus, one another is us. Jesus is a shepherd, so we must shepherd one another. Are we going to do this perfectly? Nope. We're not going to do this perfectly. Why? Sin is messy. Relationships are messy. Shepherding is messy. But this is our calling, so we try to diligently shepherd one another in our relationships, in our friendships, in care groups, in Bible study. We have a whole under-shepherding team that we use for members to be shepherded in the faith, to grow, another incentive towards membership, become part of the flock, the family, shepherd one another. But church, take a moment and think, who has wandered off that I need to go check on? What if worse they don't want to be found. That's one of the reasons why I don't want to do this. I don't want to go off and get that sheep. He might bite me. He's probably all the way out there for a reason. He doesn't want to be found. I don't want to stick my nose into somebody else's business and ask what he's doing over there. Make their own choices. What if they're stubborn in this sin and they don't want to come out of that? That's next week. We talk about that in church discipline. I don't know why he's over there. He makes his own decisions. Maybe the grass is greener over there. Maybe he likes it. Who am I to say, that's the world. That's not God's kingdom. Did you see that? All those excuses I just let out are the world's. People make their own decisions. They're, they're, I'm not going to stick my nose in anybody else's business. Wrong. Jesus says, it is your business. Because that's how it is in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we shepherd each other. That's what the world says, not the kingdom of God. If one sheep left the flock that is Jesus's, he would go after them. We need to do the same thing. How different is that from the culture that is around us, right? Just keep your head down, take care of yourself, don't worry about, don't worry about what other people are doing, worry about yourselves. How many times do we turn a blind eye to others? He says, not so in my kingdom. That's not how it works. So if I can pull all this together, the kingdom of God is a place like no other. The kingdom of God is a place like no other. It's designed by God to stand in contrast to the world around it. In the kingdom of the world, the greatest, the most powerful, the most prestigious are the ones who are celebrated. In the kingdom of God, the least are the greatest. In the kingdom of the world, there is no objective truth. 
Uh, Truth isn't derived from any outside standard. You decide what's true for you. You decide what's right and wrong. But in the kingdom of God, he is the truth. There is an objective outside standard. It is his word. We're the ones that conform ourselves to him. The kingdom of God, therefore, is serious about sin. In the kingdom of the world, we keep to ourselves. We mind our own business. We don't go sticking our nose in other people's lives. We don't talk about things like politics and religion. If they want to wander off, they probably have a good reason for wandering off. Not your problem. Not so in the kingdom of God. We shepherd one another. We notice when someone wanders off and we desperately want them back. We want them to be back in the flock. We want them to be eating the good food, fellowshipping together. We want them in the safety of the faith. Indeed, the kingdom of God is a place like no other and that's the way God himself designed it. Does that make us weird? It probably does. It makes us weird because that's not how the kingdom of the world looks. But God, his kingdom, is place like no other. And so Highlands, I say let's keep Highlands weird. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for these words. We pray that you will help us to understand them. Many serious things in here, Lord. We feel that tension of us as believers and the world. And that is a right and good and normal tension. The kingdom of God is a place like no other. Help us to be faithful, dependent servants in your kingdom. Help us to be serious about sin, taking radical action where we need to. Help us to shepherd one another gently and help everything we we do be done in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who we pray. Amen.